Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. I think we've also given people the opportunity to express that stress and that conflict much more readily than they could before. And I think that's, it has, it does seem to have brought about a change in society, which I think is a change for the worse, where we are, people seem to be more entrenched in their own positions and that they will, they will dig in deeper and they will not want to look at something outside. They won't, people, very rarely change their views these days. So what should I tell you about Alan Stevens, my guest today? Well, one of the things not everybody knows is that Alan loves music, especially the rocky kind. And through his roles in public broadcasting, he has met some of the best rockers in the world. Not only that, he loves helping those that speak up under scrutiny, be that a professional speaker, a politician, or a CEO of a company in crisis. He has chaired both national and international organizations that champions the interests of professional speakers and have organized the Global Speaking Summit in Dublin in 2022, where the world's professional speakers come together, share knowledge, share experiences, and learn from each other. A friend of mine introduced me to Alan in 2019, and I've watched and learned from him. He has touched so many lives and left so many of those lives the stronger and the better for it. Well, you can imagine I absolutely had to have him on the podcast to share some of his wisdom around crises and more specifically how leaders should behave and communicate in a crisis. What better than to learn from a master who advises on this every day? One of the first things we talked about is how do you recognize a crisis? Now, it doesn't matter if you're the Sultan of Brunei or Boris Johnson. You have to be honest. You've got to get in there before the criticism, show authenticity, and be careful of those instant headlines. We also talk about things like refugees, cancel culture, comedy, and Johnny Depp. We then go over to toxic leadership, fairness, social media, and our exposure as it's grown towards other people. We then look at, do we deny, or is denial just a form of cover-up, and what really kills you in that? Then we engage for impact. Talk about BB oil spills, and when a CEO should speak up, and when they should listen. And how's that feature in your communication? Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alan Stevens as much as I did. Hi, Alan Stevens. Welcome to the Exponential Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much, Ekstein. Pleasure to be here. Let's just jump in. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you do, because I know you do this really interesting work with crisis media management, sort of helping leaders not to say the wrong thing. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, for many years, I've been working with, with leaders and organizations and high-profile individuals managing crises. I suppose it's crisis communication, you could call it. Some people call it reputation management. Some people call it spin doctoring. And I'll hold my hands up and answer any of those. 
essentially is it's something goes wrong in an organization or an individual does something wrong or, or a mistake occurs could be any of those things that will result in some kind of potential reputational damage uh, the media will pick it up and uh, they'll quite often get the wrong end of the stick they'll get the wrong end of the story and what our job is what my job is is to go in there and help the individual and the organization if necessary communicate effectively communicate their truth help them to put their side of the story so their reputation is not damaged or at least the reputational damage is minimized so let's start with do you have an interesting case from let's say the last decade or so i do i do indeed um i was working with an organization which i have done for many years called the dorchester collection of hotels it's 10 hotels across the world including the dorchester in park lane here in london the beverly hills and bel-air hotels in hollywood and five years ago over easter i got a call from the general manager of the beverly hills hotel uh, ed Mady to say that there was a protest outside his hotel, uh, people waving placards trying to stop guests coming in and saying you must boycott the hotel. And the issue was that the ultimate owner of the Dorchester collection is the Sultan of Brunei uh, through a number of different companies and organizations. And the Sultan of Brunei had decided or announced his decision to bring in a, a very, very strong draconian law against gay and lesbian people in his country clearly unacceptable and as a result of that there were people in hollywood and other parts of the world saying you should not support in any way the sultan of brunei by staying in his hotels and that was a very very difficult situation of course because the people in the hotels themselves were badly affected by it there was nothing they could do about it it was completely out with their control and as a result we had about three years of uh, effectively media management putting out statements reacting to criticism before the this whole thing was eventually over and people returned to the hotel in as many numbers as before. Of course, the last couple of years, they haven't been there at all, like most hotels, but they are now pretty much back to normal. So what do you think we can learn from that? What do you think leaders can take away and, and say, well, okay, that's something I can do to manage my reputation? Or well, I think there are crisis. several things, Exton. I think, I think one thing that, that leaders can do, the most difficult thing in any of this crisis communication is to recognize you've got a crisis. And I think that, that a lot of people don't take the time to see what's going on. There are two types of crises, effectively. There are those that suddenly occur, a disaster, uh, an oil spill, for example, an explosion, a fire. You can't necessarily predict those. There are things you can do to, to lessen the likelihood of them, but you can't predict them happening. So they're sudden. There are only about 30% of crises that occur. The other 70% creep up on you slowly. If you had your eyes open and your ears open and you were monitoring what was happening in your organization and with your customers and clients, you'd see it coming. And by seeing it coming, you could do something about preventing it occurring. So a lot of the work is up front. For leaders, a lot of the work is having their eyes and ears open, watching what's happening, looking at the sentiment of their customers and clients, talking to people within their organization to see what reaction they're getting, because 70% of crises can actually be headed off before they occur. That's the most, that's the key point, I think, in this. So I'm wondering, let's, let's think about when you're at the, okay, the moment we're running through, it seems like crisis, from crisis to crisis in the world. Yeah. Um, if it is not um, Corona, then it is the war in Ukraine. If it's Absolutely. not that, there is everything from, as you said, homophobia all the way through to racism, transphobia, all this kind of stuff running amok in the world as well. Um, so it seems like we're living in a world of crisis. 
Yeah, I'm never sure of work. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> um, but the thing is, we, but that's 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 the kind of human condition. I think there are there are things that are going to be happening. There are always things that are going to be occurring on a micro or a macro level. Obviously, we've had global events and we've had local events and we've had micro events. And I think I think the thing is. You're always going to have. So I think the first. So I talked about recognizing a crisis. Also recognize that crises are always going to be with us. Things are always going to occur. It has been quite bad recently. Obviously, with the world, worldwide pandemic and the dreadful war in Ukraine, uh, we've seen some awful things going on. But, but in fact, awful things sadly do keep happening, uh, and they will keep happening in the future. And I think, as with all these things, as 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 people often say, it's not what happens; it's how you deal with it. And therefore, you've got to be. You've got to be prepared to cope with things as they happen, and that's disaster preparation, which is not not so much my my topic. But you can also then react in an appropriate manner. And what I help people to do is to be able to react. So I teach people to react in the right way. They don't all have to call me. I quite like it if they do because they pay me to do it. But they don't always have to call. They I, so I get them prepared to deal with any potential crises that occur and if if things do get bad if they do get serious and they need some professional help then obviously i will provide what help i can but i think it's it's a mindset a mindset that things can happen at any time and and the mindset that some people get into is well that can't possibly happen and of course next week my goodness me i didn't think that could have happened so i think what it's about being able to say anything could happen Anything could happen. And if this happened, what might we do? So I think it's more about not so much that we're having so many crises, but we are, but being able to say something bad's going to happen, we've got to be able to deal with it. I think you're touching on something interesting there because what I see in leadership teams that are in crisis is that there tends to be a, over time, you develop these relationship systems um, that either um, damages trust or doesn't allow people to speak up, or they feel afraid to speak up. So um, you're you're dealing with a lack of information and the top leadership because of the way the relationship's been managed, and then that creeps up on you, as you say. You sort of the seventy percent of all crisis creeps up on you. That's right. Um, to put somebody in the public eye on the spot, um, Boris Johnson has been going mm-hmm. through some really interesting, um, let's say, leadership challenges, I think, over the last few few months, as well as reputation challenges. I mean, the worst That's for right. me was obviously um, on the Jubilee weekend, um, where he got booed going into and coming out of, you know. It was um, it was a very interesting phenomenon to see a pres- a, a, like leader or a prime minister, in this case, in the country, being booed so publicly. Yes. If you were to advise Boris Johnson, what mm-hmm. would you tell him? Well, that's a tricky one. Boris Johnson is not my client. I can now reveal that. <laughs> so, he is not one of my clients. I do work with politicians, uh, but I but I, I do I do I've met Boris a few times. I do know him, but I've not I've not worked with him professionally. If I was advising him, what what I would say is to very much focus on the positive, um, to make it very clear what he's done, and obviously. For, for good or ill, he's found himself in situations he should never have found himself in. And, of course, you can't go back and undo that. Uh, we are where we are. But I think he's 
He's done. He's actually managed it rather well so far. I mean, we don't know at the time of recording this. We don't know what Boris Johnson's future is. So we we will see. <laughs> By the time this goes out, he might well be gone as prime minister. We'll have to see that. Um, but I think if yeah, my advice to Boris would be the same as the advice I give to everybody, is that you you've got to be honest, and that doesn't mean you have to sell the whole tell the whole truth. It means you have to be honest in whatever you say. So you have to be clear. You have to take the initiative. You don't wait for criticism to come in. You put your case out there before any criticism might arise. And that comes back to recognising the crisis. So, for example, if he had recognised that there might be a problem with things that were going on in Downing Street during the pandemic, he should have come out and said there were things that happened that shouldn't have happened, even before the police got involved or any complaints started coming in. And he should have said, no, I've dealt with the people concerned. You know, I've, I've given them a dressing down or I've given them their box to clear their desk or whatever it is and i've now got this whole thing back under control it's never happened so in other words you head off the crisis is what i was saying a little bit earlier on so my advice to him would be make sure that he knows what's happening in his own purlieu in his own area and take action before the media get hold of it or before even the police get involved if they have to and i think that if i was to point to a a deficiency perhaps in his conduct it would be He's taken his eye off the ball. He hasn't he hasn't been keeping an eye on what's going on. And he's assumed that his his bluff and comical manner will get him through, as it has done in the past. Um, this is not a one off. His behavior is not a one off. His his track record shows that he's done a number of things that he shouldn't have done. He's laughed it off. Oh, yes. Well, these things happen. And you can't you can't sustain a political career on just trying to laugh things off. So. And I think as as he's become prime minister, as things have become more and more serious for him, he's the leader of our country here in the UK. I don't think he's taken his role seriously enough. Mm. Mm. That's not a political point. That's a professional observation. Yes. And I think it's, it's, um, it's also not about what your political views are. It, it, for me, it's, it's just because it's in the public eye. It's it's um, mm. it's more easy to reflect on it because people can all see what um, what is in the news. It sounds like you're also saying that there's a sense of authenticity that people need to adhere mm-hmm. to, as well as take action. You cannot sort of sit back and relax. Is that what you mean by that? I do. Yes, I, I do mean that. Yeah, you know, we 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 both spend time in the speaking world as, as professional speakers, I and mean, we you know that authenticity is a very very important concept for us the fact that people expect you to be the same on stage as off stage or on screen as off screen it's really really important that if people see two different personas they see you playing a role in one area and you behaving differently somewhere else and that inauthenticity comes to the fore they don't trust you then they lose trust they think well how who is the real them you know is it the person we see on the screen or the stage or the podium or is it the person that we, that we met at a, at a party or, or, the, or that we heard about uh, in the media. So I think authenticity is a, is a very, very serious concept. It, it tends to be a bit of a cliche. I mm. think, doesn't it? oh, well, they're authentic or they're not authentic, and how do you tell? But it's really important because authenticity leads to trust. And if you have trust in people, then you're going to believe them, you're going to follow them, you're going to, uh, you're going to respect them. And I think once you lose that, the authenticity level, all of those things fall out underneath. I think that's the, what you also said earlier is about honesty. Um, and I think that also goes towards trust. 
I mean, I, I think Boris Johnson is quite authentic. I mean, he's always himself. It doesn't necessarily bode very well for the role that he has because he need. I think he needs to grow into the role as well. Yeah. Um, another another case in point. Um, we'll t- start touching on Dutch politicians in a second, but um, just in the UK, Pretty Patel and the whole situation around basically taking refugees and putting them, sending them off to Malawi before they're allowed back in the UK. Um, that is an interesting situation. I don't know how anybody can come up with that idea because I think it's a bit weird. It is interesting. Um, it's Rwanda, I believe, actually. It's Rwanda. Oh, Rwanda. Yes, absolutely, Rwanda. No, 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 sorry. I'm sorry. Should not do that to Malawi. It's a beautiful country with a fantastic Malawi. lake actually, in it. Rwanda is a beautiful country, too. Um, and I think, I think there are several, several points to this story. Um, one is it's, it's, it's not a solution to the problem. <laughs> I think it's a it's one of those examples where people have created a headline, a headline that that their supporters can respond to, that their opponents can object to. But it's not it's not actually you know, I'm not being political here again. It's not really a practical solution to send tens of thousands of people to a uh, a country in Africa uh, and then and then sort everything out from there. So I think it's a it's actually a bit of spin. I've talked about being a spin doctor before. It's a bit of spin. It, it's a headline. Uh, there is there is an irony there, of course, because her her parents um, um, came from Uganda. They they were they were an Asian family who li- were living in Uganda, running a small business, and they recognised that Idi Amin, who was a despot uh, in charge of Uganda, was going to threaten and eventually kick out uh, the Asian population. And they got out early, um, and they were given um, refugee status in the UK. So there is an irony, of course, in all this, which people have pointed out and something which she should have been aware of. And again, it's not about making a political point, but I think if you're going to do something like that, you need a much fuller explanation. You've got to be much more open. You've got to be much clearer. And I think what happened and what does happen with politicians, it certainly happened with Priti Patel, is that there's an instant headline. The boat people. I mean, they're they're not even refugees yet they're actually illegal immigrants because you only get a refugee status when you apply um, and you and you are accepted. So they're effectively illegal immigrants who are coming across from France in small boats and whatever and paying huge sums to people traffickers to do so. And you, I think many of us feel quite sorry for these people. You know, the fact that people are putting their lives at risk and some of them have died. Uh, families have died in these small boats in one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. And it just seems insensitive i think as well to put up Avalon saying these effectively saying these are not people we want let's ship them thousands of miles away so we don't have to worry about them anymore so i think overall it's a headline that was delivered to to try and win support garner support from from their supporters i don't think it's it's a project that was ever deemed to be a, a viable solution and i think it's all probably all going to fall apart to be perfectly honest, probably all going to fall apart. I think it's it's interesting to see. I guess we're going to get back to something else, and that is that um, the situation around Ukraine as well, um, mm. and how potential refugees from Ukraine have been handled. I think is also quite remarkable. Well, that's an interesting one, Exton. Of course, because there's been a, a wide disparity between the way in which Ukrainian. Um, we can call them refugees because they are genuine refugees. Ukrainian refugees have been handled in the European Union and how they've been handled in the United Kingdom. Uh, that may be result, well, probably is a result of Brexit. I don't know. We're not going to talk about Brexit. Let's not get onto that. But the 
But the fact of the matter is, in the United Kingdom, they have to go through a very complex process uh, in order to be accepted, um, including having uh, relations already living here or family connections or something like that. However, they're still being treated better <laughs> than the people who are coming across the uh, the channel in boats. So there is a there is a disparity. Um, some people have pointed to you know, a potential racism as, as far as the mm-hmm. treatment of U- Ukrainian people and the treatment of people who are, are coming across in boats is concerned. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. certainly something that pops up in people's minds and therefore it has to be addressed as an issue. So I think that, and if we talk about authenticity again, how authentic is treating people differently or giving people huge mm-hmm. hoops to jump through or whatever it is, it just seems unfair. <laughs> and and yeah. people do not like unfairness. That's a very unpopular trait in politicians. Absolutely. And I think that is where, what we're seeing in many Europe as well. In the Netherlands, for instance, um, refugees from anywhere else in the world tend to end up in a refugee center um, in Apple or a place like that. And um, I think that we can handle 2,000 people at a time that, that gets the process there. Right. And um, there are more people coming in than that center can process. Um, but when it came to Ukraine, the Dutch population actually step up. I, I mean, I've never seen this before. This is in the last mm. 20 years that I've been living in the Netherlands, I've never seen this kind of outpouring of compassion. Literally people opening their houses and going like, you know what, my kids are off at university. Um, they can sleep on the couch when they come back. Mm. I have a room. Okay, yeah. people putting up whole families, you know, helping people to find work, find find accommodation. Because one thing in the Netherlands we don't have is accommodation. Yeah, we have work. We've got three hundred seventy thousand jobs currently unfilled. I mean, it's like mm. ridiculous, you know. Um, but the politicians are now having to deal with this, with this disparity in society. Um, and then off the back, off the back of the, of COVID, where our Minister of Health, if I remember correctly, um, was involved in, um, deals buying PPE, uh, protective gear and, mm. um, with stuff that wasn't working properly and, um, millions, of, millions, millions of euros being spent on over, over the top of the price that it would normally have cost, you know, things like that. So it was a bit we, we've ridiculous. We've yes. had similar scandals with uh, people who appear to be, in fact, were family members of members of the government getting rather large PPE contracts. How did that happen mm. when they say, well, it was a tender process and it was all fair? Well, it doesn't look like it. And that's another point, actually. It's how does it look? It's mm. not how is it? It's how mm. does it look and how does it sound? Mm. Uh, and to a lot of people, if it looks and sounds wrong, it's wrong. I think that I'll add the word feel to that as well. Hmm. Um, yeah. I know some people, it, 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 um, honesty is great. I'm not a big fan of transparency because it normally goes like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a chubby guy. So I normally tell the joke of if somebody asks me, if I ask someone, does my ass look, look fat in this? All right. Um, it's okay to say yes. Right. What is not so okay is the full transparency of saying yes, and I can see a little roll over here, and there's maybe a panty <laughs> line. Of it that said, enough already. <laughs> okay, I didn't want to have all those details. Yes, will suffice. Um, let's. But the other thing I want to talk about is cancel culture. I mean, it's hmm. it, it's become a thing. Um, and if you're the target of that, what do you what do you do? Well. It, 
there isn't if you're if you're the target of, of council cups, there isn't much you can do personally. Uh, I think it's more of an institutional thing, and you've got to, you've got to think how these things work. I mean, there are there are university campuses that will cancel certain types of speaker, for example. Um, there are the theatres and venues that will cancel certain types of acts, certain type of comedians, perhaps uh, because of of the of the way that they behave. And you, I don't personally, I don't think cancel culture is as prevalent as people think it is. Uh, there are a lot of people, and I think. What's louder are the complaints about cancel culture than the cancel culture itself. That's my reading of it. Because I know, for example, we've had comedians here who have been the victims of local theatre saying, we don't like your act. It's, it's sexist or it's racist or it's homophobic, whatever, whatever it is, we don't like it. And they just go and book another venue up the street that, that, will, that will allow them in. And then they, they have the same size audience in a different venue. So they haven't been cancelled. They've yeah. been asked by a, a local authority not to use the publicly funded theatre. Yeah. So, I th- and I think, yeah, you know, provided people stay within the law, then there will always be an audience, and they will find find a way of dealing with that. It's probably more difficult when speakers get cancelled by universities. But then, if a speaker gets cancelled by a university, would they want to speak there anyway? I, I you know, mate, there's, there's there's an argument about about all of that sort of thing. So, I I think cancel culture is much larger in the telling than in the reality yeah. uh, i don't think there's actually a huge amount goes on and i think some people complain about being cancelled just when they've got a declining career you know yeah. they say oh i'm yeah. a victim of cancel cuts when you think well actually no you were great 20 years ago and there aren't there isn't such a big audience for you anymore uh, i've certainly seen that phenomenon uh, globally so i i mean cancel culture and i i think it's more of an invention than, than a reality and i think it's you know there are some sections of the media that will talk about it there are some commentators who will who will argue that it's a terrible thing but i think in in terms of the things the problems that are facing society today cancel culture comes way below number 100 on the list as far as i'm concerned i think it's it's it for me it's also interesting you if you look at people like jimmy carr or um, ricky gervais i mean they're not known for being politically correct no and yet their careers are flourishing. It's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, the thing is, you know, I, I do a bit of stand-up comedy. As you know, I get involved in comedy from time to time. I run, I run comedy clubs and I get involved in a bit of stand-up. And I talk to lots of comedians. And there's this phrase in comedy, which I'm sure you know, that the comedian's job is to draw the line of decency and step over it occasionally. And I think that that is, and to hold up a mirror to society, however you want to describe it. And I think that's what comedy does. Comedy challenges our perceptions. It, it challenges our views. It even challenges us. We find, we find ourselves laughing at something, and then we stop ourselves and think, oh, I shouldn't have laughed at that. So should yeah. I? So it, may, it makes us think. I think comedy makes us think. I think comedy challenges us. And I think there are very few things that can't be joked about. Uh, there, are, yeah. there are one or two things that are quite unpleasant, but even those could be dealt with in a comedy sort of way. And I think, I think the important thing is that we... In terms of our culture, we, we allow things to be said. There is this hate speech way over there. None of us want that. And, and therefore, that can be dealt with by legislation. But otherwise, we should be able to challenge things that we disagree with. And people should be able to allow us to do that challenging. They shouldn't be cancelling us for that. Um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's been in the, in the news quite a lot recently. Um, if we look at the whole thing that's, I think it was, was it the son that's, uh, that he originally sued in the UK? Yeah. And lost. And lost. Yeah. He so lost you, 
Yeah, he lost in the UK. Then he had this court case now in, um, I think it's Virginia and in the US. And so, and from what I've sort of picked up is Alan Hearn's not come across very well. It no. seems to have been, and the little bits that I've seen, there was for me a lack of authenticity in a way. And there was a lot of situations where it sounded on both sides, where you could it's sort of like it felt that people were lying about the situation. It's it's a really tricky one. Yeah. Because I mean, if you're being tried by a jury, is I mean that's something that the US and the UK have in common. It isn't perception then really important? Well, you, they used to say perception is reality, and maybe it still is, because. Yes, you, you have to convince a jury, and a, and a jury can be convinced either way by, um, by a very good advocate, a very good lawyer, and, and that's, which is not to say that they get to believe things that aren't true, but sometimes things, I mean, take the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case is a brilliant example of two people where we don't know the, the intimate details of their relationship. We cannot know. Not everything they did was recorded. Not everything they did was observed. We, we really don't know. And therefore, what, what the jury has to rely on is the evidence that's available, those recordings that do exist, uh, the evidence of witnesses, and the way in which the cases are presented. And that's, that's down to their, uh, their, their lawyers, solicitor advocates, and so on. So everything's a judgment. Yeah. Everything's a matter of judgment. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's how it's presented to a jury. And in, in the UK, it was decided that that you know, Johnny Depp lost the case against his libel case against the Sun, because they the jury said what he what the Sun printed was substantially correct. Uh, in the case uh, in in the states, as you, as you say, I think he he won most of it, didn't win all of it. I think she had a counterclaim that that counterclaimed slightly, and you know, the damages were were much less. I gather she's going to appeal. Um, you know, this one will run and run. At, at the end of the day, you kind of wonder who really cares, actually. <laughs> You know, because yeah. obviously both of their reputations have been tarnished by the court case, by their actions, by the court case, and so on. But at the end of the day, who's to decide? Who's to say? And I think the the thing is, people often worry. And I, I, some of my clients and potential clients are like this. They come to me and they say, "I'm really worried about my reputation because this, that, and the other has happened." And I say, "Fine, don't worry about it." You, know, you, don't, you don't need my help at all. And I say, but this is what if this gets into the paper? I said, look, if that gets into the paper, nobody. Firstly, it won't get into the papers, and secondly, nobody cares mm. you know, because, because these things are often much larger for us than they are for people at large. You know, for, they're larger for individuals than they are for the population. In the case of celebrities, it's different because we have a celebrity culture, and therefore people do go to and fro. And it may be, you know, he claims to have lost the latest Pirates of the Caribbean film as a result of the altercation between the alleged um, things that happened between them. We don't know whether that's true. You know, he he mm. claims that he got a film roles. He claims that his film roles were, were taken away because of the thing. Again, we can't be, we can't always be judge and jury on that sort of thing. But I think the point you were making and the point I'll come back to is the authenticity point. You know, how authentic do people look in the witness box? How credible are they? And I think I would agree with you that, Johnny Depp was far more convincing than Amber Heard was in that witness box, whatever the rights and wrongs of the case were. Mm. I was just wondering, for, for me, it's sort of a, just a, an example of um, how we as society look at things. 
I think for me that what, what I found interesting as well is how there was there were a lot of um, brands that disassociated with Johnny Depp except for Savage or Savage. Um, because, I mean, if your brand is called Savage and you have somebody that it comes across as a bit savage, um, what do you do? And apparently sales went up. So it is sort of like, um, is there a hero worship of the bad boy, you know, in, in this as well? Undoubtedly so. We, we see it in sport as well. We see it in the media. We see it in sport. That there are there are some people in sport and and they they do behave badly, um, but they become, I think notorious is probably the right word. They become mm. notorious, and that may not be a bad thing for them. It can, as you say, in the case of Savage, that actually, you know, stuck by Johnny Depp, and he, I think, after as as a result of the court case concluding largely in his favour, he'll get some of that stuff back. Mm. I'm I'm sure he will, but we do, we do. Lo- there's a phrase, a lovable rogue, isn't it? A lovable mm. rogue. And I think that's that's kind of the position that Johnny Depp has got himself into by accident or design. He is now a lovable rogue. And some people quite like that. I think if we go back to Josh Johnson, I don't think he has quite hit rogue yet. No. I or think maybe lovable. It... <laughs> <laughs> as far as Carrie is concerned. I'm Comedic, sure. whatever. <laughs> Um, but there's also the flip side of that. On the one side, we like we might like a lovable rogue, but has this damaged um, female emancipation? Has this damaged the perception of saying, "Well, if somebody's hurt me, we we need to listen." It, it's hard to know that. I mean, obviously, you know, we had with the the Me Too phenomenon, which which came out and some some dreadful things came out, the Harvey Weinstein thing, and, and so on. Um. I, I don't know. I mean, I've I've seen both sides of the case. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it was a it, it was clearly an, a relationship in which there was some some violence and aggression, whether it was verbal or physical or, or both. That that was clearly the case between them. And and who's actually to blame? Who's the victim and who's the aggressor? It's hard to tell because we don't know the details. I think it's. I mean, I've seen reactions from um, a lot of people that I know, a lot of a lot of women that I know in particular. Um, who are very upset about the outcome of the case because yeah. they think there was domestic violence involved. They think Johnny Depp was the primary aggressor and therefore it's, it's done some damage. Yeah. On the other hand, it may be that you know, other people have said and other women have said, well, she's crying wolf. You know, she, she perhaps she isn't, you know, as, as badly affected or has been as badly affected as, as, as she's claiming. Again, it's very hard to get to the truth of that. The, I think the important thing is to talk about it. Yeah. I think we need to be talking about these issues. We need to be talking about domestic violence. We need to be talking about the Me Too phenomenon. We need to be talking about how people behave towards other people. And I think if the case brings the debate to the fore, I think that's a good thing. I think so too. In, in things in South Africa, for instance, we know that domestic violence is a huge problem. Um, mm. um, and sexual violence against women is, is a really big problem. Mm. And I don't think we should underestimate the amount of damage that have been done to women. I think there's also a role for all of us to support um, women that are going mm-hmm. through something like that. Absolutely. Um, I'm just wondering if we, how do we, what is the best way to deal with this in 
when we have these conversations, in essence, about a crisis. So let's, let's say from a leadership perspective. <clears throat> okay. Um, we look at within an organization and there has been, let's say, an accusation made. Um, how do you deal with it? Because, I mean, it is an accusation. You, you, it's, not, it's not yet a legal certainty. Um, but perception is important. So where, what would you advise an organization where, where there is someone, let's say, within the top echelons that have committed a potential crime? I, I think, well, there are two ways of looking at it, as there always are with these things. And when one, on one side, people would say, let's keep the whole thing confidential until anything's proven or disproven. Uh, on the other side are people who say, well, we need to make, make it public so that anybody else who has been affected and has been scared to come forward now comes forward. So we've got a greater weight of evidence. I, I think the important thing with all of this is to try and get them resolved as quickly as possible. I think one of the, one of the most terrible things that happens is when you have a cloud of suspicion hanging over somebody for months or even years before these situations are resolved. Because very often, if it's a, if it's a named person in an organization, they'll get suspended. You know, in case the allegation turns out to be true, whether it's violence or sexual violence or harassment or whatever it is, the chances are an accusation will lead to a suspension. And if that suspension goes on for a long period of time, even if the person is exonerated at the end of that process, they may well become unemployable. They're, they're yeah. certainly going to be damaged themselves, mentally, possibly physically as well. They're, they're really going to be put under a lot of pressure. So I think a quick resolution of these is always the best thing. And I very, very rarely see it. Yeah. It's very unusual for these cases to be resolved in less than a matter of three to six months. And I yeah. think that that's the flaw in the system, that an accusation is made, it needs to be dealt with as quickly as possible. I would concur. It, it's, um, for instance, we, we see, I see situations where we have um, le toxic leaders in organizations that um, perpetrate bullying, um, mm. What we call transgressionary behavior in the Netherlands, or grensoverschrijdend gedrag, right. basically. Okay. So, what is what goes beyond mm. the pale? I, I like it's it's an yeah. interesting description, mm. um, and then that is kept so, not quiet, but it is people going like, "Oh, do we really want to deal with it right now?" And mm. so, it's not that the um, so very often the management team around them um, or the leadership team around them are not willing to speak up because they're afraid mm. but the bullying yes. continues for years and so when mm. you want to move forward when you when you want to want to heal the organization change the culture you know um mm. you need some form of truth and reconciliation you need you need you, you need the information yeah. to come up and people need to be to be heard so that they they, they f that they feel that that they've had the chance to say something um, so they can start processing and move on. But you leave an organization in trauma. And so waiting too long or waiting a long time before that gets resolved, I think has huge consequences because it's not just on that it, it person. It does indeed. It, it, no. And I, I mean, if I can give you an example, I'm a, um, I'm a governor at two schools here in London, chair of, chair of the board of governors at one school. And it's my role as chair of the board of governors to investigate any complaints that are made against a head teacher. Um, 
complaints against other members of staff are dealt with internally by the head teacher. But if somebody complains about the head teacher, it's my role and, and some fellow governors to come in and investigate. And we've had two such circumstances in the last year, uh, one at each school, interestingly. Uh, both of them found to be groundless, and therefore they were, they were complaints that came in. But we, but we had, I mean, and as you know, my philosophy is deal things quickly, and we did. Uh, as soon as I received the complaint, um, I, I called in any uh, evidence that was available at the time. Uh, I spoke to the complainant the next day. Uh, I talked to various uh, people involved. I got a, a group together. And within, within 10 days, we'd reached a decision that the complaint was groundless. And I think that was very, very important to do that. Because obviously, even though it didn't become public, <laughs> we have so many networks these days. You know, there's, the parents obviously have a WhatsApp group. <laughs> So they're all going to be talking about it, whether it's out in the press or not. You know, so you can't keep these things quiet. Um, but I think by by dealing with it extremely, by by firstly coming out and saying, yes, I've received the complaint and I'm dealing with it. And I made sure people knew that so they could communicate that. Uh, and then dealing with it very quickly. I think that was the best way we could have possibly resolved that. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think that speed is of the essence, as far as I'm concerned, in resolving these sorts of issues. And... People will often kind of hold back, and I think that I think that's that makes things difficult too. As you say, people are scared to come forward if it's a toxic leader. Uh, understandably, they're fearing they're fearing for their jobs. Now, if it turns out if the leader's exonerated, whether rightly or wrongly, they're going to be in trouble hmm. because they've made an accusation or they've supported an accusation. So, I think you've got to do these things quickly. You've got to give people confidence that if they tell the truth, they will be protected, hmm. Hmm. and that's that's really hard to do. In a case where somebody is going to give evidence against their their boss, their superior, they're going to find that really difficult to do. And you can say to them, "Well, don't worry, you're you know you'll be protected." They're going to say, "Really? Are you sure? Mm-hmm. How are you yeah. going to do that?" So I think it it's very difficult to give people that level of confidence. And I think the one way to do that is to to bring in somebody independent yeah. to say we will have an independent person assessing this. Perhaps evidence can be given them in confidence in the first instance. So that they can they can assess whether they need to go further, and I think that's what most organisations fail to do. Hmm. They fail to do. They say we'll investigate this internally, and we all know. Oh yeah, really? <laughs> You're going to get your friends to investigate this, hmm. really? People who work for you, they're going to investigate. And actually, coming hmm. back to Boris Johnson, you know, he, he invited a civil servant, Sue Gray, to investigate him. Who's Sue Gray's ultimate boss? Uh, Boris Johnson. <laughs> so that and i think probably she did a good job you know in terms of her report and her independence but you've still got to think would you if you found out something seriously wrong about your boss think "Mm, you know maybe i'll water that down maybe i'll not say that in quite such a harsh manner because i might lose my job so i think independent speed and independence are very important i think it's interesting to mention there because i see that in teams in crisis as well um you we, we try first get to the bottom of the thing. So recognize, is this a crisis, isn't it? And then something that Drenica mentioned in the podcast I did with her, um, get the scope clear as soon as possible. Hmm. What is the scope of the problem how, or the crisis? How, why, wh- how far does it reach? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what is the issue that issue, issues that need to be dealt with right now? Um, and as you were saying, authenticity in action, um, speed over precision, it's, it's getting things done as quickly as possible, you know. Um, and I see that in teams of crisis as well, we, 
we, we have that then that belief that will things be fair? You know, will there be perceived mm. fairness? Um, and people will answer. I mean, we do assessments with people as well and interviews. And it's you really have to be careful because people are not always telling you everything because they're afraid of what might happen. And so what I do is I've got some amazing psychologists that <laughs> that read between the lines like I've been, like nobody else I know, and, and so that helps us. But the average Joe out there doesn't have that kind of backup. So it is. No. It, I think it, it is hard to come to come to what is at the core and and what is actually at play. It, yeah, the fairness issue is a very, very important one. Perception of fairness, obviously, is very important. I mean, it's a shame that in real life we don't have VAR, video assistant referees, because that would be great, wouldn't it? If we could just replay what happened and say, there we are, that's what happened. Mm. <laughs> because now, I mean, all right, it holds up sporting events to have this video replay. But at the end of the day, if you can look at a video and, and draw a couple of lines on it and say, oh, well, fair enough. Mm. Okay. Yeah, they were offside or the ball was out or whatever it was. People accept that because it's fair and they've seen it's okay. So, yeah, real life VAR. That's, that's what I'm campaigning <laughs> for. Sounds like an awesome thing to have. <laughs> Thinking, um, the, <laughs> talking about real life VAR, the, the video side of things, we, one of the things, the problems with, with cortisol and or crisis in general is that we got, get these increases in cortisol. In cortisol eventually mm. leads to adrenaline releases when it can, becomes really a crisis. So when you're in a fight or an argument or whatever else, you get these adrenaline releases. And then the way that our mind processes information changes. So we go from video to snapshots. We go from color to black and white. We lose a lot of our other senses. And we very become super focused on that, which is the biggest threat. Mm. The problem is that afterwards, we need to make sense of it. And in that process, yeah. we rearrange the images so it makes sense. Not, um, <clears throat> and, and that's the problem. We, we have a or the problem. There is a problem. I see that we use testimony. Um, which is very often flawed, which then can be poked holes into. So this video-assisted <laughs> referee, I think, would be awesome <laughs> if we can carry that around because yeah. we tend to misremember what um, what has been said yeah. before, you know? But I think that's true. But, I mean, you know, it was a joke about the video. But obviously, you know, the video does exist of some incidents. You know, we, we have lots of surveillance cameras, closed-circuit television um, a lot of a lot of places do have um, effectively video replays. We had a we had a government minister here, a man called Matt Hancock, uh, who was uh, who was caught out and undone uh, by a video replay of him having, let's say, um, detailed relationships with one of his assistants, uh, which which obviously he thought you know he'd get away with and so on. You've got to feel sorry for his wife and family, but the fact was. The video caught him out. So these things do exist. And there is, <clears throat> there is a lot more video, but I th you're right. This post-rationalization thing that we have where we say, well, actually, what must have happened is that. Mm. So we, it now becomes a memory. That's what mm. happened. Mm. Absolutely. And it's I, I'm not, I, won't, I suppose it's a bit like false memory syndrome, isn't it? But you know, I don't know whether it's exactly the same as that. I'm not a psychologist. I can't, I can't testify to that. But, yes, people will remember or claim to remember things in a certain way because it now fits their outcome and i think that's a, it's a very tricky thing to deal with
So another thing I want to ask you is in the last um, almost a decade now with, with the, I mean, we had, we had the financial crisis, then we had the COVID thing just as we came out mm -hmm. of that. And then just as we started to deal with COVID, we have the war in Ukraine. So in society, we've had this increase of constant stress. So I have a theory about yeah. that because cortisol in our body um, does a few weird things with our executive functions. It reduces our um, ability to think creatively. It reduces our ability to plan and prioritize. Um, it reduces our ability to resist negative emotions and our reactions to those negative emotions. And it is not great for task initiation either. Um, so in some teams, we see there's a drop of about 40 to 50, sometimes up to 60% in performance mm -hmm. um, as a whole. The individuals seem to be performing slightly better, but as a whole, the performance has dropped. So the overall performance of mm -hmm. organizations dropped. Um, so what I've also seen is with this almost single-minded focus that we see in society, I'm just wondering how much of that could explain that we seem to have a society that is reacting um, more adversely than than we would have done 10 years ago to anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that that's certainly true. And we have we have more divisions in society uh, globally, not 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 just not just in Europe, but globally than we have had before. Some people put that down to social media, you know, and the, and the, and the blue sphere or the red sphere or whatever, however you decide to explain that. Uh, some people say it's the, it's the sheer weight of crises. It's the sheer number of things, as you say, maybe there's some other explanation for that. But I think it's in, it's, it's a truism that we, that we now do face more conflict. And I don't mean conflict in a, in a, in a Ukrainian sense. I mean, conflict in a mental sense. You know, people, people are much more ready, it seems to me, to get into conflict. I mean, there's that famous thing, how do you start an argument on Facebook? You post a picture and wait. And, and that's, that's pretty true. It really is. Why did you post a picture of a lemon? Don't you like oranges? I mean, it's, it's, that, that sort of thing happens a lot. Um, and it's, it's in a way surprising, but in a way unsurprising, because I think if people find that they they can have a platform where they can express themselves and social media is such a thing, then they will, or some people will. And I think we never used to see that. You know, once upon a time, it was the, it was the mad person ranting in the corner of the bar, you know, and you just, oh, well, that's, that's old job. He's, he's always like that. Don't worry about it. He's going to be fine. But now we've given him social media, you know, and now he can have arguments with hundreds of people a day without leaving his stool in the corner of the bar. So I think the, I think we have inevitably seen, an increase in stress, as you rightly say, and, and very interested in those, you know, the chemical explanations and, and, and hormonal things that, that happen to people. I think we've also given people the opportunity to express that stress and that conflict much more readily than they could before. And I think that's, it has, it does seem to have brought about a change in society, which I think is a change for the worse, where we are, people seem to be more entrenched in their own positions and that they will they will dig in deeper, and they will not want to look at something outside. They, people very rarely change their views these days. I mean, maybe they never did, but now people are much more in their little silo. But also, it, I think it makes us less willing as a society, not as individuals, but as a society, 
to consider the views of others, to consider views that we previously rejected or, or weren't aware of, perhaps. And I think that's that's a shame. And I think the way around that is is education and exposure to different types of culture. And you know, it's <clears throat> often, you know, it's been said there have been experiments done that the way to combat racism, for example, is to get a whole people of different diversities together and give them a task to do. You know, and then all of a sudden you find out actually we're actually we're all the same, aren't we? How about that? Who, who knew? But I, <clears throat> but yeah, I think there there is something in the air that's causing us to be far more uh, ready to argue with people than than we were before. I think for me that cortisol thing is to especially Linda Shaw about it as well. You know, um, hmm. because we have that lack of resiliency. Um, when we're under stress and that single-minded focus, we seem to end up with you say something and I react to that much more negatively mm. than I would have normally because I, I, I just mm. I, I don't have that resiliency right now. And more hectically, sort of like an overreaction almost. Mm. That doesn't mean there aren't reactions that are completely valid. It's just they might mm. be more intense than you would normally have had yeah. and mm. people are less capable of dealing with it. I think one of the things that's mm. come up for me is if you look at Black Lives Matter and um, and, and also the homophobia and things like that. So whenever there's this discrimination, um, what, we, what, what I'm noticing a lot more is in those cases of discrimination, the parties that are seemingly accused of being discriminatory don't necessarily understand that when you are the target of a comment, no matter how innocuous, and you have that 10 to 15 times a day, it does wear you down. Mm. And so now when people are under stress, they actually speak up. And I think that is not necessarily a bad thing. But how no. do we deal no. with that? I mean, how, how would you... I mean, you've seen this with leaders. They get accused of yeah. something or the organizations get accused of something. How do you think, what kind of coping mechanisms do they use to stay in motion? You float in this. Well, again, <clears throat> there are a number of ways uh, that people can deal with that. And I've worked, worked with leaders who, who have had constant criticism. And, and that's, you know, leaders of organizations, for example. In the other case, I quote a little while ago about Beverly Hills and so on. And I think several things to think about you know one is quite often the the criticism is is of the giver rather than the receiver you know it, it often tells you more about the person who's making the criticism than than of you who's receiving it that's not necessarily to say you can pass it off as as, as nothing but it does it <clears throat> it really is it's kind of an issue for them rather than an issue for you and if it, if it's certain individuals quite often these things happen and there are a very very small number of individuals who are very vocal in their criticism and you can't actually dismiss them but you can say well actually perhaps they don't have a lot of support perhaps they've got an issue going on so that, that's one thing second thing is you can deal with it with humor uh, and it may sound a strange thing to say but you can uh there are there are ways I and mean, actually boris johnson's quite good at this he will literally laugh off criticism uh whether it affects him internally i don't know that may be a different matter but externally he will just treat it as a big, oh, these things happen, you know, and and, and just you know, literally, literally laugh it off. And then, of course, you, you can you can take the criticism seriously and think, is there is there something in it? Is there something in that criticism that I need to be aware of, that I need to take note of, and maybe that I need to do differently? 
And it may well, there may well be a grain of truth in something. It doesn't mean there always is, but there may be something that you need to think about, something that you need to change your behavior. And I think if you, if you see that as a, a piece of helpful criticism, really hard to do sometimes, but you could say, actually, there is a point that all these people are making. Maybe I need to change the way I express myself. Maybe I need to change the way I conduct myself. So, and that's, so those, all of those different ways and combinations of those can be used. Have you seen this in action? Uh, yes. I, no, no, I've, I've, certainly, I've certainly worked with uh, leaders of organizations that have had personal criticism. Um, before, when we were off air, I said I, said I could, I would have to name my client. I can't name this particular client, but let's, let's say it's an airline because no, it is. Uh, so so I've, worked, I've worked with an airline where where the leader of, of or the, the ostensible leader of the airline, the person who made the public statements, did receive a lot of personal criticism uh, for his conduct, um, and did actually end up dealing with it humorously, in a in a in a humorous way, um, and actually I I, I, saw, I saw him literally become more relaxed uh, as a result of that and taking on less stress. Um, because as, as it turned out, it was a group of probably no more than half a dozen people that were making the criticism. They're making a lot of criticism, they're making a lot of noise, and they had access to some significant media. But it really didn't go any wider than that. And and the way that we t- determined that was by talking to a whole bunch of customers and saying, do you agree with what these people are saying? No, no not really, no. Everything's fine. So... We realized that it was a, a, a small, very, very small pressure group. And as a result of that, um, in fact, yeah, we gave them all funny names that I can't reveal. <laughs> and that's kind of how dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's old so-and-so again. <laughs> so, yeah, it was fine. <clears throat> we, have a, we have a prime minister here in the Netherlands that, or president that, we call him Minister President, but it's actually Prime Minister. He's, um, there's a bit of a reputation currently for not being truthful. Mm. And if we look a little bit further back, um, where it basically started is that he, with the cap, actually, they accused him of, of it beforehand already, but with, with the last cabinet formation, there was a specific member of parliament um, and minister that they eventually said, um, that we have these formation executives, people that basically are appointed to negotiate with all the different parties and come to some sort of consensus as to who's going to be in charge and who gets what negotiated out mm. of their um, election platforms. And there was one of them, Peter Umsicht, and they said, um, Fungsi elders, which basically means job elsewhere. Oh. And it was literally one of the people working on this committee that basically had a piece of paper. She was rushing, rushing home. Some, somebody was, or I think, I can't remember oh. if she tested positive for COVID or somebody else in her family that she was rushing home. And, um, she had to, just had this piece of paper and the media were filming her as she was leaving. And somebody went and zoomed in and just uh-huh. saw that function somewhere else. And mm. so it is, will he function somewhere else? Will he function better mm. in another role? There was, there was no clarification on it. And so the whole thing became deny, 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 deny. 
And I see that mm. happening a lot with politicians in the Netherlands. It's first denied, denied, denied till you can't. But is that a good approach? No. <laughs> no, no, and no. The <clears throat> it's the cover up that kills you. That's that's the phrase. It's the cover up that kills you. And I think the it 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 does seem to be a natural reaction to try and push back and say, no, it never happened. No, I never did it. That never occurred. And then it comes out that it, it did. And there's evidence that it did. And there are witnesses to the fact that it did. And then you're in big trouble because you're, you're now a proven liar. I mean, Boris Johnson, no, as far as, you know, he cleverly said, as far as I'm aware, or as far as I've been informed, no parties ever took place in Downing Street. The fact he was at some of them does rather give the lie to that when we saw the videos and the photographs and so on. But yes, and a, a lot of a lot of leaders, a lot of leaders will do this. Deny it. So, right, so the press have said this, that, and the other. Get a denial out quickly without even finding out whether it's true or not. You know, that's, it, it, we don't, we don't. And then, then the cover-up might occur. Watergate, classic example, of course. It was a cover-up that killed Nixon. It wasn't, I don't mean literally killed him, you know, destroyed, brought down, you know. But the... And it's difficult to come out with your hands up and say, yes, I did it. But that really is the best approach. Right. As soon as a crisis, if you realize that something's gone wrong or you've done something wrong or somebody close to you has, you've got to come out and say, yes, it happened. And make yourself the center of attention so that anyone who wants to comment on this story comes to you first for a quote before they go to any of your critics. So you, you fill that, that crisis vacuum with your voice. You admit that it happened. You apologize. If it's something you should apologize for, you apologize straight away and you explain how you're going to fix it. And if you, if you take those actions very quickly, it comes back to that speed being of the essence. If you take those actions very quickly, you have the best possible chance of recovering your reputation or not having even been damaged because people will say they were honest enough to admit their mistake because we're all human and we all know we can get things wrong. You and I have got things wrong in the past. We will get things wrong in the future. It's just the way of the world. But if we come out and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That was, it was, that was bad of me. I do apologize. I'm going to fix it. That's the, that's the best hope. It really is. I think what you said earlier about 70% creep up on you, to me, sort of ties in with that. I remember an episode of Doctor Who with David Tennant. And I think mm. it was the last one in one in that series where he spoke to the aide of the prime minister um, and whispered something in the ear of this person. And mm. later it came out that he said, doesn't she look tired? And that caused mm. the fall of the person. And it's an interesting thing. So if, if I look at Mark Rutte here in the Netherlands, he's... I think his reputation started getting damaged when people caught him out on a lie. Ah, yes. And since then, it's created an anchor, and, and it's just every time they catch him on a lie, it feeds into that. <coughs> and yeah. So whenever, it doesn't matter if it was a small thing or a big thing, whatever is lied about just feeds that feeds the perception. It does. I mean, there's that classic phrase, how you do anything is how you do everything. And therefore, if you if you catch somebody doing something, you think they're going to do that again. They must have done that before. And so, I mean, you can't say to somebody, well, you can actually. Don't don't lie. <laughs> That's what I say to people. Don't tell lies. 
you're going to get caught. You might get away with it for years, but you're going to get caught. Uh, somebody will find out. Somebody will know. And I think that's that's probably the best message to get through to, to leaders. Just don't tell lies. You don't have to tell the whole truth all the time. Because that's that comes back to your transparency point. You don't have to show your workings all the time and say, you know, here are our accounts every five seconds. You don't have to do that. But if somebody asks you a question about something, you've got to respond honestly. You really do. I think it's, but how do you recover from something like that? I, because I see it in, in happening in organizations. I, I can sometimes see how this is building and building and building. In, in, in you, a leader gets caught out on something or is perceived to lie about mm. something and <clears throat> it just keeps snowball. It just becomes a snowball. How do, how do you stop that snowball? It is very difficult. I mean, you can, you can be contrite. You can be apologetic, uh, but if people won't, won't forgive and won't forget, you've got to go. You've got to go and do something else. And I think in the final analysis, if, if that snowball becomes too large, it becomes so large that you can't stop it. You've got to go. You've got to, you've got to do something take on another role. Take a break for six months. Go and do something else. Go and head up a charity. You know, do, do something valuable with your life because <clears throat> it's never it's when it reaches that stage when it reaches that huge snowball stage you're never going to be able to recover it it's going to go down that hill and it's going to start an avalanche and you're, you're done for and you'll take people with you so you've got to do the decent thing and, and go at that point i've done that twice in my life as well just because mm -hmm. you've built up a reputation not necessarily bad but you've built up a reputation on doing one thing and yes then you change directions careers or within an organization mm. and you're always seen as that anchor it's really difficult to make that mm. transition um i've resigned twice because of that um mm. simply because it was f for me a case of i wanted to move on um mm. and i didn't see a way within the organization to do that but not everybody has that opportunity unfortunately to move no. on <laughs> No, they don't. But I mean, if you if you've got to stay put, then all you can do is be brutally honest, and and <clears throat> and open about about whatever you do, and you've got to you've got to demonstrate your change of behaviour. It's really tough, though. I think if you've been caught out many many times in in lies or bad behaviour, it's almost impossible to recover. No, I wasn't. Let's say I'm glad to, I wasn't caught out on lies or bad behaviour. It's more a case of yeah. I had a. In one organization, um, there were problems with people and relationships and connection and authenticity. And I stepped in and said, okay, let's talk about the emotions um, and what people are feeling. But that wasn't my job, but I thought it was necessary. Unfortunately, right. over the next six months, the perception started building that I'm emotional. Instead of yeah. that, I have a reputation for talking about emotions. I now consider to be emotional because somebody attached the fact that I'm gay to the emotions and then started talking about that. Uh, and so you get to a point where the more you deny, the, the, the more you feed into the, into the lie, you know, so, so um, I decided, you know what, it's just easier for me to find a different role in a different company, yeah, yeah. um, where I don't have to deal with that, you know, and yeah. so I, I see, I sometimes wonder how many people are stuck in their jobs because they can't make that that decision, mm. you know, because it's, it's, it yeah. might be too yeah. fearful for them to move. If I should say that 
part of crisis management is to engage for impact. Mm -hmm. What do you say about that? And do you have an example? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you're right. Of course, it is. There's there's no point engaging if you have no impact. There's, if if you're if whatever you do, whatever you say, has no impact on on the receiver, on the audience, it, then it then it's certainly not going to help. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are quite a number of examples of, of that that I've that I've been involved with, and I'm I'm just trying to think of the best one. Probably, um, I'm going to give you one that I wasn't involved with <clears throat> because it's a it's a it's a major one, and it was um, a BP oil spillage in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, where they had a, a huge disaster, uh, dealt with very badly initially by their um, by their MD, uh, who made some dreadful, dreadful PR errors, despite having 100 people in his PR department at British Petroleum. How on earth uh, he managed to ignore 100 people's advice, I don't know, but that's the sort of leader that he was, obviously. Um, but off the back of that, uh, after he left, he had to go. He was, there was no way back for him. After he left, uh, there was a huge amount of restorative action taken by that, that organisation. Uh, in terms of rebuilding the fishing communities they destroyed on on the on the Mexican Gulf Coast, uh, in terms of getting involved in other environmental projects in other parts of the world, and you know becoming a sponsor of environmental organisations, and you might say that's greenwashing. You know, people do say that's greenwashing, and to some extent it is, but actually it's doing some good too. <laughs> you know, it is it is doing a lot of benefit. And I think what's, what, was, what was interesting about that is that what they did had an, enormous, had an enormous impact on our environment, an enormous positive impact on the back of a massive negative impact. But I think it only happened because he went. I think, and, and, what, and you had some, some wiser, some sager people in the organization to say that was a dreadful thing that happened there. We're going to have to work very, very hard indeed to recover from that. And they did. And good luck to them. <laughs> As an interesting example, it's also an interesting example of someone that does not listen to his people. I have, um, yeah, I've spoken to some people that have were on the inside track on that mm. specific <laughs> thing. Mm. We've talked talk mm. about this, but I, we I talked about before. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know somebody, and um, and the the one thing that I found fascinating was that um, with the amount of stuff he was spewing. He was getting mm. into some serious trouble. I mean, mm. the, he was going to get arrested very quickly if, if he yeah. kept on down yeah. that line. Mm. So they made the, the primary task right off the bat was to just get him out of the country because he was yeah. in the Shut US at the time. Yeah. And that was, and, and how much he resisted that and, and didn't mm. want to listen. And I think, I think that to me is, is another thing. Get the, as you said, make sure that you know that it is a crisis. Okay. Yeah. Get clear what the scope is. And part of that is listen to your people so that they're also there for the organization, not just you. I, I agree, actually. But I think what's happened is that some people have become leaders, and we call them toxic leaders perhaps, because they haven't listened to people, you know, because they haven't taken the counsel and the advice that they've been given. They've kind of gone their own way, they've plowed their own furrow, and they've become successful. Um, I wouldn't say Elon Musk is necessarily of that ilk, but you never know. You know it's, it's entirely possible that he's, he's got where he is by not listening to anybody else. 
and and just deciding to do what he's going to do. And he he's still a controversial figure. I mean, you know, only in the last week or so, he said to people, you've got to be in the office at least 40 hours a week or you're out. You know, well, that's okay. That's his view. He might have been advised against it, but he's not he's not being shifted from that. Um, so I think I think it's very interesting how some people get in these positions because of a characteristic and then get in trouble because of the very same characteristic. And that's I see that quite a lot. Strange, strange how people react to that Elon Musk announcement because um, I've had people go, yeah, working from home, you know, productivity increases, productivity decreases, all these kind of arguments. And mm. and I just thought, I want to go give him a hug because he sounds it's really lonely if he has to have so many people that have to come in and worship at his <laughs> altar. I mean, um, he... <laughs> I think that's a, that's, a fair, that's a fair reaction to it. I mean, my, my reaction to it is... It's his company, you know, and he can he can set the rules. Nobody says he's got to allow people to work from home. If he doesn't want to, then, well, okay, fine. You know, you know where you are. And I think people set an organizational culture. It's often the person at the top that sets the culture of an organization. And you've, you've got to decide as, a, as an individual, do I want to be part of that culture or do I not? Um, and from an, ex- from an external point of view, some people said, it's a terrible thing. You've got to let people work at home. And other people said, Go somewhere else, you know. I, I tend to like. I think if some, if some, provided they're not, they're not doing anybody any damage by saying you can't work at home. They're just setting out, setting a rule to say if you want to work for at Tesla or, or whoever it is, you've got to, you've got to be in the office. So okay, All right, that's the rule. I mean, what, what it added to that is the six-hour work, six-day work week comments and all that kind of stuff. It, 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 I think that's <laughs> what people may be reacting to, but they're sticking to the first one. You sort of like think. The thing is, what, what I what I think about. We were talking about Elon Musk. We were also talking. We were also talking about BP. Um, adjusting, you're saying, well, if somebody's gotten really good at doing one thing, and that's what made them mm. successful. In a crisis, the playbook is different. Yes, it is. And, and the problem there, of course, is you would expect the head of the organization to be the spokesperson during a crisis. That is not always the best solution. And another thing that I get involved in when I'm training boards of directors and MD, CEO, whoever it happens to be, who quite often want to be trained separately, incidentally. They'll often want a one-to-one session where the board has to be all together. Um, there's obviously a reason for that. Sometimes the CEO or MD is not not the best spokesperson at all. Um, we, we had a great great example here. We we had a, a, a businessman um, called Mohammed Al Fayed, a very successful businessman, and uh, owned Harrods for a while, but he never spoke to the press. He always employed a press and media spokesperson. Some very some people that I knew actually very well. And I thought, smart man, because actually he was dreadful in front of a microphone, but he recognized that he wasn't good at putting forward his organization's message. So he simply said, if, if somebody wants a, an interview, they're going to have to talk to my spokesperson. And, that's, and everybody knew that. So nobody ever asked him anymore. They just rang up and asked for his spokesperson. And I think more organizations could take a tip from them that the, uh, that the MD, the CEO, may not be the best individual. You, there's a, a, an example. The I'm sure you remember the Zeebrugger disaster, the Herald of Free Enterprise car ferry that turned over uh, coming out of Zeebrugger. And 
I think of, you know, about 12 people were killed or something like that. And the, the MD of P&O Ferries um, was interviewed at a, at a cricket match. It was a Sunday. It was a cricket match. He was at a cricket match in his blazer, trilby hat, obviously put his cigar behind his back so the smoke was curling up over his shoulder. And it's an obvious question, which you should never answer, but is always asked, do you know what the cause was? And he said, well, I understand from workers that I've heard that the dock workers at Zeebrugger loaded all the heavy lorries on one side of the ferry, and that's what caused it to tip over. And, of course, that wasn't true. <laughs> Absolutely wasn't true. They didn't know the cause at the time. In fact, the cause was that the bow doors had been left slightly open by his own staff on the ferry. Water had flooded into the car deck. And that had gone to one side and the whole thing had gone over. So he, he was talking from a position of ignorance, blaming the wrong people, because that's what he did. He, he just he was one of these shoot from the hip kind of guys. You know, you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you the answer. And it was uh, a really appalling, appalling error, an appalling thing to do and disrespectful and all those sorts of things. He lost his job, of course, as a result of that. But that's. That was an example of he should not have been the spokesperson for that organisation. They should have put somebody else in place who knew what they were doing. I think one of the other thing is one that 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 Rinika mentioned the other day. I don't know if you've seen that as well. Is that if you want to, if you know what how, the scope of the crisis, the impact on the customers and your potential future, you need contact. You need one. Do not do what you've always done because it's not going to get mm. you out of this result one so throw out yeah. the playbook look at what is necessary now Two, contact your front line mm, of course do you see that leaders do that in organizations the enlightened ones do. yes yes the enlightened ones do of course um because the the front line it's it's not it's not just about contacting your front line it's being aware of what the front line is saying because coming back to that 70% of crises creep up on you, the front line will know very well that something's going wrong. They'll have spotted it before anybody. They'll know exactly that there's something on the way. And the issue is some organizations don't listen to them. They don't, or they don't seek to hear what the front line is saying and what they're experiencing. So, yes, I think absolutely talk to your front line, but make that a continuum. Make it a continuous process. You should always be getting feedback from those people and if you see warning signs you need to take note because they will know what's happening they will know what customers are saying they will know what the system's doing for example and they'll know that things are going wrong and actually they'll have workarounds the, your front line will have figured out ways to work around things that don't work and you need to know that because that shouldn't be happening it is it's one of those fascinating things for me was when um, I was responsible for sort of some of the largest call centers in the Netherlands in, in the software that was released mm -hmm. in that. You doesn't matter what you think your software is going to limit people to do. They mm -hmm. will find a workaround that's shorter, faster, and more effective. Okay. Yeah. So unless you talk to the people actually in the front line, <clears throat> Don't design without knowing what is real. Let me give you a great example of that. And that is, I was working with an organization um, who, who were producing customer service software. And they were, they'd revised their system. They designed a new system. And they were getting lots of complaints from clients that customers were getting their details deleted 
rather than updated. And when they looked into it, it was a simple thing that what had happened was that the, um, the button to delete was next to the button to update on the screen. It was a touch screen. And it didn't used to be, but the software designers had thought it looked better that way. So, so they redesigned the screen. So update and delete were very close together. And as a result of that, a lot of customers were getting deleted. Um, they, the software designer said it was going to take a long time to fix, like a month or something. So what happened was they advised all of the customer service staff to get a little bit of tape and put it over the screen where the delete button was. So they couldn't touch it by accident. That's absolutely true. I remember going to a call center and seeing all these little bits of sticky. I said, what, what's that? And then they told me what it was. Oh, really? Brilliant. I mean, <laughs> well done. It is uh, It is strange. Uh, talking about call centers, two things that I remember. One is um, not having information that you desperately need to be able to serve, to serve people yeah. that are calling in. I think that is in leadership the same. Have I got the right information? And how long in advance do I need to signal that I need that information? Or how long does it need to be collected? Stupid example is um, if you call the call center, they already have all your details. I mean, they will know your telephone mm. number. They will know your mobile yeah. number and everything else. So call a line ID. You can, you can see who the person is before they even mm. on the, before you even answer the call. So what we used to do, or what we did is we implemented a system where it would check every single product that they would have. It would run a technical check in the background. So everything from read out the modems, run tests against them, you know, from the telephone exchanges all the way through to whatever um, um, data systems you had. And then all of that information was fed into the agent. So as, as they click pick up, you were still officially hearing the cue sound um, and the music, but they had about 10, 15 seconds in which they could read through <clears> and go like, ah, okay, this is what, what the possible problem is. And then they did validation and, and, and make sure that you, who you are, you are. <clears throat> but it also meant that that information could be fed into real-time monitoring to see where problems were existing in the country. So preemptive um, support could be sent out. And the decision was made to not send out the preemptive support because if nobody's complaining, why should we fix it? <laughs> and I just thought that was a bit of a <laughs> dramatic choice. <laughs> it later panned out to cost mm -hmm. them millions. But um, it's, it's sort of, do I have the right information? Is this the information that I need to make the right decisions? And have I considered the consequences? Yeah. I think that's yeah. something we tend yeah. to forget also in a crisis. So what Absolutely. kind of things would you say people should look at um, when they're trying to shift the needle with, um, in a crisis? What kind of indicators would there be in the media that you can go like, oh, things are shifting or things are moving in a different direction? Well, I mean, obviously, in any sensible organization that has media monitoring, uh, and there, there are, there are, there are pieces of software that you can use. Uh, Radian Six is a great example where you can judge sentiment, uh, so you can actually monitor sentiment in in the media, whether it's online or, or, or broadcast. So <clears throat> they can use tools like that, and they should use those tools on a, on a regular basis to keep an eye on what's happening. 
that also will give an early warning as well. Um, if there are lots of reports of customer dissatisfaction, for example, in a particular product or survey or something, they will start to pop up maybe in different parts of the media, maybe in different parts of the world. But if you've got that media monitoring switched on and you see that that curve starting to go up or even a spike starting to occur, then, then you keep an eye on that. Um, so, I mean, ob obviously, things like um, activity in a call center. We were just talking about call centers. That, that can tell you a lot uh, and that can alert you very quickly. But what you really want to know is if you've had a crisis, how do you know things are getting better? How do you know things have improved? You can only do that if you've got a comparison to make. So you need to know about sentiment beforehand and you can check sentiment afterhand. You need to know about you know, levels of purchase, levels of renewal, all those sorts of things are affected by your reputation largely. Interesting, probably more affected by reputation than quality of product. I know quality of product can affect reputation, but actually it's it's quite often it's the other way around, that people will buy on reputation and then think about quality later on. Uh, and I speak as a former consumer journalist as well, and I know that that's the case, that people will say, oh, they're, they're, they're a good brand, I'll buy them. Apple, brilliant example. I mean, I, I'm an Apple fanatic as, as well as lots of people. <laughs> I'll go and buy an Apple without even checking if it works, because it probably will. So I think you, you need to be able to make that comparison. You need to be able to say, how are things going? What are the trends? How are things going? Uh, focus groups, of course, the adult traditional focus groups can still help. They can still be a valuable tool in terms of, of assessing sentiment, provided you put them together in the right sort of way. Um, and social media, of course. Social media is it's a crude tool in many ways in terms of determining how your reputation is going. But again, it will allow you to, to look at this, this things like social mention and addictomatic and various tools that you can use on social media to see what are people saying about us. And I think that's a really, one of the most important things I could, I could say to people. Do you know what people are saying about you? Because that's your reputation. And if you've got no way of monitoring that, no way of measuring it, no way of assessing it, you're never going to be in a position to improve your reputation because you don't know what it is. How would you say listen versus speakers could monitor the reputation? Okay. Bookings, obviously, <laughs> if, you get, if you get booked and refer, but referrals more than bookings. I think a lot of it is about referrals. People don't talk about speakers much online. We, we, we tend to be a little bit egotistical and we think, oh, we get all these wonderful reviews and people talk about, they don't really very much at all. People don't talk about a speaker they've seen. Uh, why would they? So I think it's, it is to do with, with referrals. I think it's to do with, it might be to do with whether you're being asked to comment on, on the media, for example. Uh, if your view is being seen as valuable, um, then the media will find you and they'll, they'll keep finding you if your view is continually valuable. So I think there are, there are a few things you can do. <clears throat> but for me, it's, a lot of it is about how your colleagues relate to you. How are you thought about in your network? You know, how, how do people refer to you? How do, they, how do they mention you in their own blogs and, and posts and so on? Because you, you will pretty soon get a handle on that. You'll know exactly whether you're a respected figure in your community, as, as indeed you are, Exting. You are a respected figure in the speaking community, uh, which, which is one of the reasons it gives me great pleasure to be on this show. Um, but, it's, but it's something... Yeah, I would never say to anybody they're not a respected figure, but of course... <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm not praising you because I am. I know I'm not taking it away. No, you really are. You, you know, you're president of your associate of your country and so on. You've done a fantastic job 
in the speaking world uh, globally as well as nationally. Um, I just wouldn't say anything to people who are not respected. I'd just say hello and goodbye. That's about it. Sometimes it's it's the best way to be polite about that. Always be polite. But, but I, you know, when it comes to crisis, there's, I think there's this interesting roles. I mean, one like yours, where you advise people, mm. um, people like Greenacre, who's been through a crisis and managed an organization or a large chunk of an organization, in this case, a Paris, uh, or state organization, uh, a state department subset during COVID, you know, and transitioning from mm. internal to, to mm -hmm. online. Um, and then I spoke to a guy that was in charge of a prison gang um, mm. called Welcome Vitboy. And it was, he's a very nice guy. He's reformed. He's got his own charity. He's now helping kids in the townships in, around Cape Town not to get no. involved with drugs and with gangs and things like that. Mm. So, I mean, if people listen to this and want to support him, um, mm. absolutely do. Um, one of the things that he said, which I thought was quite interesting, because I mean, in essence, his legal he led an organization that was constantly in crisis. Because I mean, you have to deal with mm. every day there is going to be something that's going to try and stop your organization from working. And so sure. they created governance over a two hundred year period. So the, the 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 gang is over two hundred years old. Um, they've created their own governance, obviously not hampered by the law, um, mm. with really weird consequences. One of those things is that stuff that I see in, in, in crisis and organizations as well is have a dashboard of priorities. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So every morning they get together and go, what are we going to do today? Right. Which hmm. just sounds like agile crumb set of, prior of priorities, you know, sort of yeah, yeah. The stuff that yeah, you do yeah. in a normal <laughs> commercial business as well. And so they want, they made sure that every single person in the morning knows what the, the result is that they have to deliver at the end of the day. Mm. Obviously, the penalties were a little bit worse than what we would navigate normally in an organization. Um, but you see that as well. You see the sort of sense of focus on priorities in, in crises. And do people focus on the right things? <laughs> Sadly not. <laughs> no, people, people tend to focus on what's important to them. And that's understandable. Uh, it is understandable. But what, what you've got to try and do in terms of a crisis, you've got to focus on what's important to your clients and customers because that's that's how perception is created. That's that's what they're going to feel. So even though you might think, well, I'm, I'm not sure that matters very much, if it matters to them, it does matter. And that's how, that's how your reputation is established, how it matters to other people. So, if you say, so what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is prioritize your staff and your customers and what is important to them and that's where your priorities should lie. Yes. At the end of the day, obviously, the leader has to make the decision. So if there's any, if there are different views coming in, they've got to make the call. That is their role. They need to decide. But they have to do that, being cognizant of all of the other opinions that exist in within and without their organization. Otherwise, they're definitely going to make a poor decision. I think if, if we, we, we sort of summarize that, say, so, well, we've got to get information. We've got to act boldly we've got to make sure that mm. we understand the impact and the unintended consequences of what we decide to say we yep. need to make sure that we have a, an eye for the front line our internally our people mm -hmm. and our customer that helps the front line helps us with that um i think then the next thing is what do we do and what don't we do 
what do you think should have the focus in in a crisis? I said, well, obviously, if if you've got a crisis, you've got to deal with the crisis. So the focus has to be whatever caused the problem and how you're going to fix it, and you need to address that quickly. The second focus is communication, and that is how you how you let people know what occurred. You you, you want to try and avoid that that vacuum of speculation that occurs on the back of a crisis because people will start to worry. For example, over the weekend, um, here we had Jubilee celebrations uh, here in London uh, over the weekend for 70 years of our Queen on the throne. And there was a, a bomb alert in Trafalgar Square. I was, I was in town at the time. Uh, the police evacuated the whole of Trafalgar Square. And if you know London, that's a big square. But they it, it cleared it immediately. And then an explosion was heard. And social media was suddenly full of the fact that a bomb had gone off in Trafalgar Square. And that lasted for about half an hour, and there was panic and other, other bombs elsewhere. Turned out it was a controlled explosion of a car boot, which was a suspicious vehicle that, had, that turned out to have nothing in it. And the problem was that the police hadn't communicated that. They cleared the square. They said, we can't tell you what's going on. We just need to get out. They used a controlled explosion to open the boot of the car, found nothing inside. It just towed the car away. It didn't tell anybody. They just said it's safe to go back in now. And I think that, so that was, it was a prime example of the, the vacuum of speculation. All of a sudden, all over social media, you need to get out of London, there's been a bomb. You know, and, and people were, again, starting to panic because there was a vacuum of information, there was speculation. So people hadn't, hadn't communicated. So that, that communication thing is important. So yeah, getting information as quickly as possible, fixing the problem, making sure people understand what's gone on. And, and then... Declaring the crisis over. That's your job as a leader. Don't allow it to, to go on. You, it is your job as a leader to say, it's done. It's finished. It's been dealt with. And here are the safeguards in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's very important. It almost sounds like a speech, you know, and at the end you go like, thank you. <laughs> and just before yeah. that, you tell people, and here are the takeaways, sort of reiterated and yeah. sort of summarized. It's... Um, and let's leave it at that. Let's summarize and say, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, actually, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Crises are not planned, not desired, and definitely not easy. A crisis needs to be a place where you're on your A-game, yet can also be a crucible for change and for changing you. When we look back at the war in Iraq, the financial crisis of 2008, the coronavirus and the war in Ukraine, we see changes and choices that may have been postponed for years coming to effect in short time. I think Winston Churchill said it best. He said, never let a good crisis go to waste. How often do we see a crisis as only a hindrance instead of an opportunity, a place to look for that which can and should change and should have changed? How can we use a change impetus such as a crisis, as a burning platform that scrambles people to start working on the next future. In this, communication is critical. Be authentic, stand for what you believe in, and find the future after the crisis. Remember to create hope. As leaders, hope is the one thing that distinguishes us from those that we lead. Helping people to find the next step so they can start working on that future after the crisis is something we as leaders have to take very seriously. 
Building for a future after a crisis and leading through a crisis is very often just finding the next step. Where is your next step in your crisis? Now go out there, be exponential and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.